I'm James Gould, and this is The Recess Course. Today on the show, we're going to be talking about burn resuscitation. Burns are a complex entity. Not only are burns a cutaneous skin problem, but they're also a trauma problem. They're also a tox problem, and they're also a difficult airway management problem. So there's a number of complexities that go into managing these patients when they roll into the emergency department. We're really lucky today to have with us an expert in this area. Dr. Jack Rasmussen is an assistant professor in the Department of Critical Care and Plastic Surgery. He is the director of the QE2 Health Sciences Center Burn Unit, where he and I both work. And we're just really lucky to have him here to share his expertise. Thanks for being on the show, Jack. Thanks for having me. Talking, talking about my favorite topics. Yeah, that's right. Well, listen, I just want to open up with a bit of a broad question. What's the most important thing to remember when managing patients with burns? Good question. I think because they are an injury that a lot of healthcare providers may not see often, it's really easy to get distracted by the burn wounds themselves. And I've seen even very well-oiled teams sort of get distracted by these cutaneous changes or injuries that often are not the most relevant or pressing concern. And so I think the key really should be remember all of your principles, the way you would manage any other sick patient coming into the emergency department or the pre-hospital scene, and really focus on those same principles. They will keep the burn patient safe until someone can kind of manage the burn injuries at a slightly later time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. They certainly can be distracting for sure. And 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 it, what adds to that is it's not something mm-hmm. we see very often. And it's right in front of you. It's something such a visual stimulation that can really get you distracted. And you really need to focus on some of those other principles that we're gonna we're gonna now talk about. In emergency medicine, we focus a lot on airway management. And you know, burn patients can certainly, as we know, have have issues with their airway inhalational injuries. How do you decide when a burn patient needs to be intubated? In other words, like who are the people that you think require intubation? Mm-hmm. This will vary a little bit from what a lot of people were taught. And I think that those principles many of us learned in medical school or our training is that burn patients are prone to significant facial and airway edema. And as such, they should all be intubated early. I think there's a, certainly a growing body of evidence just that that's not the case, that many burn patients will not require intubation, and that we've probably at times been overly quick to intubate burn injury patients. The ones who we were traditionally taught to intubate were folks with what appeared to be findings associated with facial or airway burns. So the things that you think about are, you know, facial burns, singed nasal hairs or eyebrows, carbonaceous sputum in the mouth itself, folks who have some potentially a little bit of vocal changes or hoarse voice, when those have been studied, really very few of those things have been linked to a need for intubation or actual inhalational injury. What has proven to be far more indicative of a true inhalational injury in the need for intubation is strider hypoxemia and the presence of an actual inhalational injury. And we can talk about how you diagnose that shortly. I think the the decision around who to intubate will fall a little bit into where the patient is being managed and what the comfort at that center is with airway management or difficult airway management. If you are seeing a burn patient in a large tertiary center where you have access to emergency medicine physicians who are comfortable with difficult airways, anesthesia, critical care medicine specialists, that sort of thing, 
I think that the best approach is to watch these folks carefully, consider if the mechanism of their burn would actually be associated with an inhalational injury. So if you have someone who is outdoors and has a quick flash explosion from throwing gasoline in a bonfire, the mechanism really does not support that they should have a true inhalational injury or vocal cord edema that requires intubation. So I think a lot of it is sussing up the history a little bit and saying, is this patient at risk? And then if they are at risk, watching them carefully to say, are they in true respiratory distress right now? Are there symptoms like or signs that we talked about already that would indicate they have an inhalational injury? And if so, can we further assess if there's true vocal cord edema or an inhalational injury below the level of the cords? The best way to do that is likely nasopharyngoscopy. So assessing the, the supra and subglottic airway. And that can be certainly with your ENT or otolaryngology colleagues, or if there's an emergency room physician with that technology and comfort to look at the cords, that's another good option. And then ideally, if there's no evidence at that time of true kind of vocal cord swelling, reassessing serially. So maybe checking again in two to four hours and seeing if there are changes. If you're beyond kind of four to eight hours, I think the likelihood of someone at that point developing significant vocal cord edema or need for intubation is pretty slim. I'll put a caveat on that is to say that you may have a patient who does not have an inhalational injury, but if they have really profound cutaneous burns, so we're talking the 60s, the 70s, the 80 percenters, who are going to need really dramatic volumes of fluid resuscitation, those folks you may need to consider intubating simply because the volume of fluid they're going to receive will cause generalized edema, and that can be the lips, the face, the tongue, and the cords or airway. So that would be sort of the second group that I would consider for intubation. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I think that, uh, you know, it's important to highlight that, that data that we probably do over intubate these patients. And I mean, you work in the ICU, so I mean, you see Mm -hmm. a lot more of the Mm -hmm. complications that are associated with, with, with intubation and putting, putting patients on a ventilator. And then there's also the, the side of things of intubating anyone uh, mm-hmm. comes with some amount of risk, right? Like it's a, it's, you know, a relatively frequent event for us in the emergency department, mm-hmm. but it's not, doesn't come with no harm. And so, you know, if we can identify patients who truly need to be intubated, I really think that that should be the goal. You know, with all that being said, I imagine from a timing perspective, you know, you might run into a situation where you've, you know, waited too long and now the intubation becomes difficult. So mm-hmm. it, it must be a bit of a balance between like, making that decision early enough that you, when you do decide you need to intubate them, it mm-hmm. isn't even more difficult anatomic airway. Correct. I will say though, you know, although we work in a, you know, a moderate volume burn center, we really cover all of Nova Scotia and then a, a reasonable number of the burns from PEI and or New Brunswick. I can really not think of an instance in my head where there was a delayed intubation where it became a really challenging procedure. I should go back and just kind of point out that as you point out, that is a that is the risk, that is the concern with not intubating burns early. So you get to a situation where it becomes really challenging. And so I I think that if you are a practitioner working in a smaller center where maybe you don't have a lot of airway comfort or you don't have much in the way of backup, and especially if you're going to have to send the patient to a tertiary care center like here, those may be folks where even though there's not a, a, a really clear need for intubation per se, that you may have to outweigh or kind of balance the risks of 
perhaps a slightly unnecessary intubation with that catastrophic event where you don't intubate early and then they're halfway between one center and another and it's becoming really challenging. And so I realized that for some practitioners, tubing them may be just the right and the safe thing to do. And I don't think that's ever wrong. As you pointed out, though, it's not a benign intervention. And there is that sort of spiral effect we see. So if someone gets intubated unnecessarily, a lot of our burns are young males. There's lots of data to back that up. And so you can imagine no, nobody likes having a breathing tube in, particularly not young males who just had a traumatic injury. And so they need tremendous amounts of sedation to keep them tolerating the tube. They end up hypotensive, so either end up getting more fluids than they technically need from a burn perspective for that hypotension or pressors. And it sort of turns into this spiral where suddenly you have this patient who appears dramatically sicker than they, they probably would have been if you could have avoided the intubation. So I think this is a, a nuanced topic, obviously, but I, 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 do, I think it's relevant to point out that many of the signs that we are taught about early on do not really correlate with a need for intubation. Yeah, yeah, well said. So is is a fair summary to say that if you have the skill and the technology available to actually visualize this patient's airway, and what we're talking about is either a nasal pharyngoscopy or in our center, the AMBU A-scope, mm-hmm. uh, where we could topicalize the, the patient's airway and actually look and say yes or no, they do have periglottic edema or cord edema, and then decide from there that this patient needs either intubation now or maybe they don't have the edema and they can just be carefully observed and and the decision for intubation to kind of be delayed and potentially completely avoided. I think that's a perfect summary. Awesome. Well, listen, let, let's switch gears a little bit. In in previous talks that I've heard you give on burns, and, and we'll link to that in the show notes as well, you speak about these patients having associated injuries or stuff that's not just the burns, but they can be trauma patients, they can be tox patients. I'm interested to know the sort of traumatic injury patterns that that you end up seeing in these patients so that providers that are caring for them can kind of have an eye out for what to expect and, and what to assess for to make sure they don't have these things. Mm-hmm. Burns really do fall under the umbrella of trauma. And so I think just a burn injury itself is a traumatic injury. Beyond that, though, there will be the relatively small cohort or burn patients who also have concurrent traumatic injuries other than just the burn. We, I've, I'm working on a paper with some of your colleagues, actually, that hopefully will get published shortly, looking at our kind of local data for the past 20 years or so, looking at the overlap of burns and trauma. And it is a relatively small number. When we were reviewing the literature, it hasn't really been well described elsewhere either. But we know that there will be burn patients who have associated traumatic injuries. We know that their outcomes tend to be worse, not surprisingly, and that people often miss traumatic injuries because they are distracted by the burns or they don't do the normal kind of survey that you would for an otherwise kind of non-burned trauma patient. So there's your high voltage electrical injuries who may sort of have a blast as well. So they may be thrown, they may have been sort of at a height and then fallen. So all the associated injuries you would expect with anything along those lines, a blast injury or someone who's been thrown a distance. So think about spine fractures, long bone injuries, internal, internal organ injuries as well. Some of your burns who come in will have been in a motor vehicle collision. So obviously all the same patterns you'd think of for anybody else who came in via trauma team activation from a car injury or a car accident. Those are the two big kind of groups I would think of that you have to really watch for your injury patterns in. The workup otherwise is going to be no different than any other trauma team activation. So you really need to put the burns aside for a little while, do your 
primary survey, all of your adjunctive sort of studies, investigation, then your secondary survey. Ideally, and I think that this does get missed sometimes, not just in our burn patients, but probably trauma patients across the board, is that tertiary survey. Once things have settled a little bit and you can take your time to go head to toe to really look for someone's associated injuries. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What about the talk side of things? You know, the, the two big ones that always come up, especially when patients have been in a closed space for even a short period of time. You know, we, mm-hmm. we always harp on the carbon monoxide and, and cyanide toxicities. Do you empirically treat for these things? I, I mean, and I know carbon monoxide a bit easier to empirically treat for, but can you touch a little bit on that? Mm-hmm. I think there's very little harm in empirically treating for carbon monoxide toxicity. Really, we know that carbon monoxide is lethal and it's responsible for a large number of pre-hospital deaths. It is thankfully a very easy toxicity to treat. And it's really in the form of 100% FiO2 or oxygen. Even four hours in essentially any patient should clear their CO levels down to the normal range again. It has a very short half-life, especially in the presence of 100% oxygen. We know we can outcompete it and help to actually make sure that oxygen is binding to our hemoglobin and not carbon monoxide. So I think there's very little risk. And this is coming from someone who despises over-oxygenating patients other than those first four hours. And you, anyone who works with me will hear me harp on it routinely, especially in a burn population where they are hyper-inflammatory. They're making you know free radicals constantly. You want to avoid sort of adding fuel to the fire. But for those first four hours, I think absolutely it's worth treating them with 100% oxygen. Mm. It may come up or people may kind of question what is the role for hyperbaric oxygen therapy? I'm only aware of one study that has sort of shown a benefit to treating burn patients or those with carbon monoxide toxicity with hyperbaric oxygen. And essentially, my recollection of the findings is that it shows a, a, a very slight difference in neurological outcomes at either one or six months post-injury. My concern is that if we know we can treat most folks with 100% oxygen and essentially get their levels to normal within four to six hours, at least at a center like ours where it's not as, as a very high volume center, we don't have multiple tanks that we can dive people in, trying to get any acute kind of injury or trauma patient into that tank in less than four hours, I think is unlikely. I'm always very hesitant as well to put, especially a really sick burn patient in the, the hyperbaric chamber, because if anything were to go wrong or you were need to, to urgently intervene, you really will have a hard time doing that. So I don't generally prescribe that as part of my treatment for carbon monoxide toxicity. As for cyanide toxicity, I think that if you have someone who is coming in with a suspicious story or a, a high risk mechanism of burn, so particularly being indoors for an extended period and inhaling smoke, And they're coming in with a lactate that really is out of keeping with their burn injury otherwise. So you may have someone coming to the house fire with only, say, 10 or 15% burns, but their lactate's like 12 or 14 early. That is beyond what you would expect to see with someone with relatively minor cutaneous involvement. So although I don't think it comes up that often, if you have a provider who's really, truly suspicious, then I think it's worthwhile to, to give them a cyanokit, the antidote. It can interfere a little bit with early management. It will like change the wound drainage to make them look a little bit different. But I think that that's secondary to obviously treating true cyanide toxicity. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't really, I've never really thought about burns causing an elevated lactate. I mean, I always focus in, we try to get an early VBG in, in mm-hmm. most of our resuscitations. And 
Certainly this would be obviously helpful in this situation to tease out cyanide and carbon monoxide toxicities. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you expect for a lactate then in these patients? Like what is what like what do you see for, you know, what you would call a severe burn and their and their lactate? Like what are the rel- like usual numbers you see? In the cyanide toxicity patient population or those without? No, just w- without. Because I, I just, I guess I never really thought about the idea that I would expect the lactate to be up. And, you know, if it were six or seven, it would pique my attention. I'd be like, hmm, maybe this is cyanide. And usually I'm worried more if it's greater than 10. Uh, mm-hmm. But I never really even thought about the fact that just a severe burn in general, based on it, the burn physiology, would actually mm-hmm. cause a significant elevated lactate. Like, what do you see? Do you see like two or three, or do you see like seven, eight? Like, wow. what's the lactate range? I think it's hard to give you a, a number, which does not make for a very reassuring answer for your podcast. So I apologize, but it will depend entirely on I think the extent of the burn, what degree of resuscitation or not they've received thus far and just their overall physiology. So obviously a young healthy person will tolerate some degree of hypovolemia and hypoperfusion associated with their burn much better than someone who's perhaps medically comorbid or frail. I'm very accustomed to seeing most burns, at least, you know, with 10, 20% TBSA involvement, having a lactate in the twos or threes, fours, even initially, especially if they haven't quite been resuscitated appropriately yet. But it's not out of keeping to see much sicker burns, and this is thankfully rare, but the, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s coming in with lactates a little on the higher side, so more five, six, seven, especially if perhaps the extensive involvement's not been recognized or they've not had access to appropriate resuscitation yet. So it can really be all over the map, but more than 9, 10, et cetera, then I'm really starting to worry and think this isn't just hypovolemia because of all that sort of leakage of your plasma volume out into the interstitial space. This is something above and beyond that. Mm, Yeah, interesting. Along the same lines of TBSA, we haven't quite got there yet in terms of like Mm -hmm. actually assessing the burn and the severity. I'm interested, advice for us at the bedside, just how do you recommend assessing for burn severity? And specifically, we're talking about total body surface area percentage. Mm -hmm. There's really two components to think about when you're trying to assess the extent or the severity of a burn. There's the total body surface area affected, which we've mentioned, both of us, and that's expressed as a percentage. So very simply, what percentage of their skin has sustained significant cutaneous injury because of the burn, be it thermal, chemical, electrical, et cetera. For most providers in either the pre-hospital or the emergency department, the rule of nines is probably going to be your, your go-to approach. And most of us will hopefully be familiar with that, but really the body is broken up into either 9% areas or multiples of nine. Each arm is 9%. The front of the torso is 18. Back of the torso is 18. Each leg is 18. Head and neck is nine. And so you can kind of do a quick and dirty estimate. And really, early on, that's all that you need. That's going to be enough to at least give you a, a fast sense of, Roughly, how much do I need to worry about this patient? Do they qualify as sort of a major burn, which would be greater than 20% for most adults or 10 in children? And what is my approach? Where am I at least going to start with my fluid resuscitation? If you have someone coming in with much smaller burns or sort of scattered burns because of, say, like oil splash while cooking, for example, you can use the Palmer method. So using the patient's palm to represent approximately 1% of their TBSA you can kind of get another quick estimate of how much their skin has been involved. 
If you're really going to do a deep dive, and this would be more so for whoever's going to manage your burns longer term, there's the Lund and Browder chart, which is kind of based on more anthropometric data and it's sort of graded or scaled for age and the way that our, our body proportions change over time. It will give you a much more accurate assessment, but that's beyond, I think, the scope of what most folks in the, the pre-hospital emergency setting need. Yeah. The other component beyond just TBSA is the actual depth. And this is relevant to the TBSA as well. When we talk about burns, I think most people will be familiar with the terminology of first degree, second degree, third degree, occasionally fourth degree. Although that's still what most patients will hear and what people perhaps who aren't as familiar with burns will use, really we've tried to move away from that a little bit to some slightly different terminology. So superficial or epidermal burns, meaning first degree, traditionally first degree, and they just affect the epidermis. Partial thickness, meaning a burn that is previously referred to as second degree and involves all of the epidermis and it's extending into the dermis. And then finally, full thickness burns, or previously third degree, extend through the epidermis and the dermis into some underlying tissue layer like the subcutaneous fat generally. We do not include first degree or superficial slash epidermal burns in our calculation of TBSA because as long as the basement membrane, the deepest layer of your epidermis is still intact, it will serve to prevent heat loss, fluid loss. You don't have an increased risk of infection. So the, the simplest analogy is a sunburn. So we've, even as though it pains me as a plastic surgeon to say this, we've all had sunburns at some point or other, sometimes quite significant. And just that sort of reddened, painful skin does not mean, mean you sort of are weeping fluid. You're not going to be hypothermic. You're not at risk of infection. It's uncomfortable, but it doesn't really contribute to a true burn injury. So I think that's a key point is that the, the depth informs your TBSA. So you really need those two components together to estimate how bad this kind of patient is going to behave. Are the presence of blisters reliable to say that this has definitely gone beyond just a superficial burn? Absolutely. So if you see a blister or a, a burn that where clearly the skin has kind of blistered off or kind of sloughed off, or there was a blister and it's now been removed, that is at least a partial thickness or th second degree burn. Really, the mechanisms that the entire epidermis has been injured, those connections between epidermis and dermis have been destroyed or injured. And so that space between dermis and epidermis sort of fills up with seroma fluid or plasma. And so that's what creates the blister. So if you're seeing a, a blister, you know that the injury has extended at least into the dermis. Sometimes when you have them in the emergency department and you're kind of doing your initial assessment, you can wipe those blisters off to sort of assess the wound base. And sometimes you'll see that it's actually down into the, through the, the dermis as well. You can see the dermis has been completely injured. So it's at least partial thickness, but it could be hiding a full thickness burn. Mm. Yeah. In terms of the total body surface area assessment, is there a kind of, is it like a tipping point where for you, you kind of mentally shift like airway aside, trauma aside, tox aside, we're just talking about total body surface area. Is there a tipping point where these patients suddenly will become what we define as a patient requires resuscitation or where the physiology of that patient changes such that they're at risk of, of deteriorating and, and requiring resuscitation? Is it a percentage? Is it a range of percentage? So we traditionally say, and this is largely sort of guided by the American Burn Association, that for folks who have burns, adults who have burns greater than 20%, that those are patients who would 
likely benefit from a, a formal resuscitation approach. It's not to say that folks with less than 20% don't need any fluid, but you can often just encourage them to, to take fluids orally. Maybe they get a liter or something like that, and then you watch them to make sure they're not getting under-resuscitated. But really, it's the folks above 20%. The pediatric age group or the elderly, and in the elderly, elderly in the burn world is a bit of a loaded term because it may be much younger than a lot of folks want to consider themselves elderly at. But some sources will say 50. I don't really think that's generally accurate, but certainly above 60. Those folks don't seem to tolerate the physiologic disturbance of a burn injury as well. So I think you need to be prepared to do a more aggressive association at a lower TBSA. But for your, your vast majority of adults, it's going to be greater than 20%. At least think about a resuscitation. Beyond though, like it's, it's the folks who have burns greater than I think 30, 40, where they're actually going to, they will be sicker. Those will be patients that will require more dedicated attention and care. All of this obviously is a little bit affected by the patient's overall health and physiological status. So mm. I've had a 20-year-old with a 50% TBSA burn that came directly to the burn unit, essentially like in a floor bed with just a little bit more kind of care from nursing and was fine, like did not need to be intubated, was very easy to resuscitate and never got or acted really sick. Equally, I've had elderly frail patients with just a 15 or 20% burn who become profoundly unwell with sort of multi-organ involvement where you're really going to have to work hard to kind of try to get them through the injury. So a lot of it is physiology and comorbidity dependent, but as a base rule, greater than 20% in an adult, think about a formal resuscitation. Yeah. I don't want to nerd out too much here on the, on the physiology, but I am interested if you have just sort of a summary of, you know, what is it about these patients that causes them to get so sick? I, I know it's, it's got to be some amount of vascular permeability, mm-hmm. um, you know, fluid leak. But is there any anything else? Like, is there a vasodilatory component to this? Like, what's actually what what actually causes them to be so sick when they have such high percentage burns? Always got time to nerd out of a burn physiology. Come on, <laughs> so it's a really complex topic. The major components I think of, or the way to explain it best, is that skin really is our our greatest protector against infection and injury. So it has a tremendous immunological presence. And so when you start seeing skin injured or destroyed, there's this sort of mass, especially in larger percentages, so the 20, the 30s, et cetera, you will start to see this really profound hyperactivation of your immune system and all the sequelae that come with that. And it's not dissimilar to sepsis, for example, where in our really sick patients, it's not the infection per se that's making our bodies so sick. It's our, our immune system's dysregulated response to infection that causes all the injury. The same is certainly true for burns. Part of that response that will happen quite early is that increase in capillary permeability, as you spoke of. And so you will start to see in a 20% burn or so that you will have a significant amount of plasma volume leakage from the capillaries of the, the vascular space into the soft tissues around them. When you have a greater, just locally, I should say, when you have greater than a 30 or 40% TBSA burn, it's no longer just localized to the area that was burned. You will see a systemic kind of leakage and hyperpermeability of your capillary beds at that point. So you'll have a, a decrease in your circulating volume. Interestingly, especially with the bigger burns, there's also a fairly immediate change in their cardiac physiology and often sort of a 
a burn cardiomyopathy, if you will, or a decreased cardiac contractility. Mm. What really differentiates it from sepsis is that in sepsis, we know that that's a very vasodilatory state. And although a lot of people think otherwise, really in burns, if anything, there seems to be an increase in your systemic vascular resistance to try to compensate for this decrease in your circulating plasma volume. And that probably impacts or isn't, you know, it certainly contributes to that decreased cardiac contractility because suddenly you have a heart that's working less well because of all these inflammatory mediators, et cetera, and sort of catecholamine surge. And you're trying to pump against a, a tightened vascular space or a higher afterload. And so you sort of get this one-two punch that can make folks really sick. This is, if I, you know, if I worked at a bigger burn center and perhaps had a clone, I'd love to, to sort of make early cardiac POCUS a part of every burn assessment, especially in the bigger ones, just to see, just to document what are those kind of cardiac changes that occur? Because I think it would be fascinating. And I wonder if it would change our approach to management to the really sick burn patients. And then because of all this sort of inflammatory changes that we've talked about, plus decreased cardiac contractility, decreased circulating volume, you end up seeing decreased end organ perfusion. So as you pointed out very early in the, in the recording, although burns are really a continuous injury, I think, and I'm a little bit biased, more than really almost any other pathophysiology we see, they can affect really all of our or- other organ systems. And so these really can be, I think, the sickest patients that we see in the hospital. They're really severe, like the, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s. The physiological changes that you see with that are, are fascinating from a, a critical care perspective. Yeah, that's so interesting. I want to press on something that uh, you said there about the cardiac physiology. Is there then any role for inotropes or inodilators in, in these patients? Like if you were to assess someone, you said, look, their cardiac contractility is down, their SVR is clearly up. Is there mm-hmm. a benefit to being on something like dibutamine? That's a, a great question and one that I wish I had evidence to, to back up. I think potentially so. The role of vasopressors in these patients versus inotropes is really not well guided by our kind of our protocols or the, you know, ABLS, advanced burn life saving, that sort of thing. It's really not been well described. There's certainly traditionally been this idea that if you're using pressors in a burn, you're going to make things worse. So the, the concern is that this maybe increased sort of squeeze on your vessels is going to decrease perfusion to your burned areas and worsen the burn injury. I don't really think that that has been borne out by evidence per se, but it's certainly still the dogma in many centers. I think that there is a group of patients who, despite adequately resuscitating them, they will still be hypotensive. And those are the folks with the really severe burns. I find the elderly as well, and then those with bad inhalational injuries, and that's largely anecdotal, but I think that's not untrue at other centers either, where we still reach for pressors early. And whether or not that's the right drug to use, I don't know. The physiology would suggest otherwise. We know that that doesn't always actually map out to clinical practice and evidence. I have certainly had really severe burn patients before where we have resuscitated the daylights out of them. We've been using pressors and we're losing brand and we start to see true multi-organ failure setting in. So like lactates above 10, kidneys crumping, all that sort of liver unhappy. And we have in those instances tried not necessarily dibutamine because you're always worried about dropping the blood pressure with that. 
but I have tried epinephrine instead. So you get a little bit more idotropy, but still maintaining some vascular squeeze. And I've seen patients who I was certain were going to die within the next kind of 12, 24 hours, literally come from that to seeing their lactate come down hourly, seeing them just sort of stabilize overall. That is anecdotal. And again, those major burns happen so infrequently and they're so unique each case that it's hard to make any kind of real decorations or, or protocols from that. But I do think that physiologically it makes sense. And this is why I actually think, as I said, that it would be fascinating if someone had the ability to really incorporate cardiac pocus or even like indwelling, like leave a, a TEE probe in so you could watch the physiology changing to see what the effects of our various kind of pressors and inotropes would have on these patients. Yeah. Yeah. As POCUS is becoming more and more utilized in emergency medicine, mm -hmm. as well as ICU, you know, I'm sure you're going to see a lot of this physiologic approach to these patients rear its head. I look forward to the study that you're probably going to do on this with all the time that you've got uh, yes. all your spare time. Look, I mean, I think in terms of the resuscitation, we've touched a bit on pressors. We've touched a bit on, on ionotropes that, you know, fluids has always been the sort of the mainstay of treatment here. And I learned as well as probably the majority of the listeners about the Parkland formula, which I understand is kind of is on its way out. So in terms of what we were all taught exactly, as you said, most of us learned about the Parkland formula. And I think that really was the mainstay of burn resuscitation for decades. Just to quickly rehash it for those who maybe are not as familiar, it was a way to estimate how much fluid burn patients would require in the first 24 hours based on their TBSA and their weight. So we multiplied four cc's of fluid, so four mils of fluid for every kilogram the patient weighed, multiplied by their TBSA. We would give half that fluid in the first eight hours because it was felt that they were most leaky. There was going to be the most capillary kind of permeability increase in the first eight hours, and then we would drop it and give the next sort of half of that fluid over the following 16 hours. The, the principles of it theoretically make sense in the broad strokes, but no one's physiology actually behaves that way. No one comes in with their burn and they have from hour zero, this tremendous degree of capillary permeability leakage. And then after eight hours, it cuts in half. And so I, I think that what we've found is that A, it doesn't really reflect physiology and B, when we've looked at the evidence of how much fluid these patients receive, if they're given a Parkland formula resuscitation in the era of modern burn and critical care, we dramatically over resuscitate them. When the Parkland formula was first described, we often weren't feeding patients early, like we would go days without nutrition. They weren't actually getting as much IV sedation and other IV meds. And so four cc's of fluid multiplied by your TBSA and your weight is probably the right physiologic amount that they need for a major burn injury. But if we're also giving them all this additional fluid in the form of enteral feeds, et cetera, we're going to give them more fluid than they require. And the consequences of over-resuscitation, I think, are harder to treat than under-resuscitation. So you're thinking pulmonary edema, ARDS, you're thinking abdominal compartment syndrome, extremity compartment syndrome, ocular compartment syndrome, which is rare but devastating. Those are harder things to, to fix that is under resuscitation. So if someone's a little bit dry, you start to see their kidneys get unhappy, it's very easy to give more fluids, but getting them out is much harder. So to try to deal with this, in 2016, the American Burn Association changed their recommendation in the American Burn Life Saving kind of module or guidelines to two cc's of fluid multiplied by your weight, multiplied by your GBSA. 
They still recommend that half in the first eight hours, half over the next 16, but I have personally moved away from that a little bit and I think anecdotally had nice results. So really now the way that I approach it is simply that volume, that formula, the two cc's times by weight times by TBSA, if you divide that in half to figure out how much they're gonna get in the first eight hours, divide that by eight to figure out how much they're gonna get in the first hour, that's the volume of Ringer's lactate that I plug into the pump. But ideally, if you're able to, each hour after that, you are adjusting your resuscitation rate based on your assessment of the adequacy of your resuscitation. And that will be largely guided by urine output, but not just that, you're gonna be looking at their hemodynamics, their lactate, their hematocrit, all those sort of surrogate markers, are they, are they mentating, all those other sort of things to try to make an appropriate change to your resuscitation rate. And some folks will need more fluid than you anticipated based on the formula you've created, that you've calculated. Some folks will need less. So I think it, it's just trying to be more mindful of physiology and exactly matching the volume of fluid that you're putting in to the volume of fluid that's leaking out through the capillaries each hour. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So to summarize, two cc's, times by total body surface area times other weight that's the first 24 hours divide mm-hmm. that in half is what they get in the first eight divide again by eight is what you get in the first hour and then you Correct. change based on your urine output yes i just want to pop in here and further clarify a point that we're talking about when jack says that he would increase or decrease the hourly rate of fluid based on urine output What he's talking about is essentially an increase of about 20 to 30% or a decrease of 20 to 30% of that infusion rate. And again, for adults, that goal should be about 0.5 cc's per kilo per hour. And for pediatrics, we're looking at about one cc per kilo per hour. Listen, I'm going to float something by you, see what you think. And please don't shudder too much at this because as a burn (laughs) specialist and an ICU doc, I'm going, to, I'm going to bring you into the eMERGE doc mind for, for a second. So for me, what I want when I'm standing in the resuscitation room is to do as little math as humanly possible. Yeah. And, and what, I, what the nurses need to know from me is like what to put into the pump when I hang the, mm-hmm. the ringer's lactate. I have this thing in my mind, and I only care for adult patients. I don't do pediatrics, so this doesn't apply to the pediatrics. But I have this thing in my mind that for an 80-kilo person, if I do something as simple as add a zero to the total body surface area. We can do the math backwards, and I've done this before. It equals out to the exact same cc's per hour as you would with two cc's times by total body surface area times by the patient's weight. So adding a zero, let's say they have a 30% total body surface area. I tell the nurses, start at 300 cc's an hour of ringer's lactate. And that works out to be the exact same hourly rate for the first hour of someone who's 80, 80 kilos. Now, you and I both know that not everyone that comes into our emergency department and weighs 80 kilos, right? There's some people that weigh a lot less, some people that weigh a lot more. But I hang my hat on the idea that the difference between a 60 kilo person and a 100 kilo person is about 50 cc's per hour difference. So instead of 300, I really should be starting them at 250 for a 60 kilo person. For a person that weighs 100 kilos, I really should be starting them at 350. But if for everyone, I just add the zero, start at 300, 
do you think the difference of the 50 cc's in the first hour is going to be that much different if i'm going to be changing the hourly rate based on urine output eventually i'm going to get to the right number and the difference is probably going to be on the you know on the, like you do the math but the difference is probably going to be in the realm of you know maybe 50 to 200 cc's of fluid over the 24-hour period yeah i think that's absolutely reasonable and I recognize, as you said, that for most folks, especially in the pre-hospital emergency room setting, that sitting down and doing those calculations, A, really depends on having an accurate TBSA, so someone sitting down and doing the, the London router chart, and actually having the time and the interest to sit down and do those calculations. I think that your method seems very reasonable. I know that for to make it even simpler, the ABLS has recommended for children less than six, when you're first starting out, just give them 125 mils an hour. If it's six to 13, it's 250. And for anyone above that, just give them 500 an hour. So I, I think that that's also a perfectly reasonable approach to your initial resuscitation that completely avoids kind of annoying calculations, knowing that you will find out within the first hour or two if you are adequately resuscitating them or not. Our target really is quite strictly around 0.5 cc's of urine output per kilogram per hour. So not like just at least that, but way higher is acceptable. You're really trying to quite tightly stick to roughly 0.5 cc's per kilogram per hour. So again, to keep it simple for your average size patient, around 40 or so, 40 to 50 is fine. Mm. As long as you're keeping that in mind and you've got a team who can say, listen, we only had 10 cc's of your output this hour and this patient is 80 kilos, you recognize you're going to have to bump up from your 300, your 400, whatever you started at. Mm and just continue to increase or decrease as necessary. Yeah. If they were a trauma and you had given them some amount of trauma resuscitation, you know, by way of blood products, how do you factor that into the, into the fluid resuscitation that you'd be given? Not that well studied in terms of like, how do blood products compare or do, do they change the amount of crystalloid that you require or not? Nor is there really great guidelines for in a trauma patient who also has burns, do you have to resuscitate them to an even greater volume than you would otherwise. I think if you have a really significant traumatic injury, especially if there's significant ongoing blood loss, like forget the burn, just manage them like you would any other trauma patient. The volume they're going to get via kind of blood products will work just fine. And arguably, depending on who you talk to, maybe a little bit better, although there's no evidence to support that, obviously. So I think ultimately manage them the same way you would a trauma patient initially as you need to. And then once they've stabilized hemodynamically, then you can start returning to the burns and kind of remembering that in addition to that, the hole in the bottom of the bucket that got blown out when they had a femur fracture, for example, that the bucket's also leaking from about a hundred other spots that you need to kind of start pouring some fluid in to match that amount. I love that metaphor. That's great. I want to change gears and talk a little bit about something that you had mentioned earlier in terms of, you know, compartment syndrome. Mm-hmm. You know, the textbook talks about, I've never had to do this, but, I, you know, doing an escherotomy in a patient that either has signs of circumferential burns to an extremity that's causing decreased perfusion to that extremity or in the chest burns that are causing some issues with, with ventilation. You know, what what's your trigger? What, what do you think about in terms of like when it's time to do an escherotomy? who should be doing this and and how do you do it if you unfortunately have to decide to do it? Mm -hmm. For me, escherotomy should be done for any patient with circumferential burns around a limb, full thickness circumferential burns around the limb or the torso, even the neck potentially. Really those patients we know with full thickness burns that are circumferential, the tissue loses its 
expansibility. So it's not able to stretch and expand as the underlying soft tissue swell with the volume of resuscitation that these patients require. And so if the overlying skin can't stretch as the underlying tissue expands, it will eventually act like a tourniquet for all intents and purposes. So for patients with very clear full thickness or third degree burns that are completely circumferential, I, even if it's a short segment, if say it's only a couple centimeters band across like the lower extremity or upper extremity, wherever, I do think that those folks should have essentially a prophylactic escherotomy performed. Mm-hmm. The point of an escherotomy, and just to, to clarify for folks who are maybe not as familiar, is really to divide through the escar, which is just the term we use for full thickness burns or completely kind of devitalized skin. You're just dividing through that dead stuff into the underlying subcutaneous fat. It is not a fasciotomy where you're dividing through skin fat all the way down and actually opening up the fascia overlying the muscle compartment. As such, they are not technically challenging to perform per se, but I would say that there's still very little comfort outside of most plastic surgeons in performing them. You guys do, thankfully, rarely, like emergency room thoracotomies. There's no question to me that technically speaking, Anyone listening to this could probably do it in an absolute pinch if you had to. And it can be as simple as just using a scalpel to divide, just gently kind of divide through that SCAR into the fat. But many folks just will not have seen these, will not feel comfortable. They're worried about hurting underlying structures like nerves, vessels, etc. It's not hard to do. It's just something they haven't seen before. Ideally, the way I prefer to practice them myself is to use electrocautery because I find that although the SCAR is not going to bleed, the tissue just underneath it is often quite vasodilated to try to, you know, it's, it's vasodilating in response to this kind of injured tissue nearby that's become anoxic and hypoperfused. And so if you do it with just a scalpel alone, you'll end up nicking a few kind of cutaneous veins that are going to be a nuisance. But if you absolutely need to do it for limb saving or life saving of the chest and torso of the chest or abdomen, do it. Other patients you need to be on the lookout for are those with deep partial thickness or second degree burns that are circumferential. Those burns over the course of one to two or three days may either kind of end up maintaining a partial thickness depth and just healing on their own. But occasionally, if they're under-resuscitated, if they develop too much cutaneous contamination, et cetera, those burns may worsen and become an act more like a full thickness burn, in which case they may go on to develop a later compartment syndrome. So those are the folks you're watching carefully. You're having your nurses monitor for signs of you know, distillium, perfusion, sensation, cap refill, all that sort of thing. In terms of the torso, you may find patients with circumferential full thickness chest burns become very difficult to ventilate. And I've seen this, it can be quite dramatic and emergent. If that's the case, they really need some form of escarotomies for the chest so that the, essentially you can split the chest into two so that the front plate of escar can rise and expand as the ventilator is helping them breathe or the patient's breathing independently. The abdomen as well, if you have really full thickness circumferential abdominal burns, that can lead to abdominal compartment syndrome with all the associated findings. So decreased urine output, kidney failure, bowel ischemia, liver ischemia, et cetera. Wow. I didn't realize that you would do prophylactic escherotomy on the, on the mm-hmm. circumferential burns in the extremities. So, you know, obviously that patient's going to make their way to a burn center if they mm-hmm. have not yet developed some form of you know malperfusion of their leg mm-hmm. you'll probably do that prophylactically but for the provider is a fair summary that the provider who hasn't done this before but is, is doing it emergently the trigger for them 
is what? Is the trigger lack of like an absent pulse? Is it cold extremity, absent mm-hmm. Doppler? Like what, what would you, if you were talking to me on the phone and I was in mm-hmm. the periphery, I said, I'm worried about this limb. You know, when would you say it's time for me to cut it? Yeah. So I think all those things you've highlighted are exactly the right things to be looking for. Really, you're looking for a limb that is clearly showing you that it's not receiving adequate arterial blood or just not getting venous blood out appropriately. So absent pulses, cool limb, lack of cap refill, even if it's like very, very hyper brisk, although I don't see that that often, you worry about venous insufficiency. So all those I think would be triggers to perform your escherotomies. I'll just briefly go back to something you said. A lot of people say, oh, geez, I, like, I didn't realize that for any of these full thickness burns that are circumferential, you would do an escherotomy. But the reality is, if they have full thickness burns, that area is going to need to be excised and grafted or reconstructed in some form or other. Right, right. You're not, you're not giving these patients scars that they wouldn't have otherwise. You're just getting ahead of the punch essentially and creating these linear scores through the escar that's going to come off in a few days either way. Mm, Yeah, that's a great point. In terms of pain management, I mean, you know, a great deal of these burns, maybe not the full thickness, but you can speak to that as well. In general, high total body surface area burns are going to be very painful. What's your approach to managing that pain when they come into the resuscitation room? Let's assume that we're talking about a high TBSA and does it change if they're intubated or not? Yeah, so really it's not, it, these are described and I think appropriately as one of the more painful injuries a patient can have because again, our skin has so many, has so much innervation that of course when it's injured, patients are going to have a tremendous amount of discomfort. But the management is not that different than any other patient with significant trauma or painful injuries. So I think we are always going to reach for your non-opioid options if it's safe to do so. So essentially all these patients just start getting Tylenol right out of the gate and right on Tylenol so long as they're having any pain whatsoever, if there's no contraindications. The use of NSAIDs I think is beneficial because a lot of this pain is inflammatory related. A lot of these patients are young and would benefit, but you're not going to necessarily give NSAIDs if you're really worried someone's under resuscitated or they're going to sustain some degree of renal injury. Otherwise, acutely in the emergency department, most the mainstay of your analgesia will be opioids. The main change, if they're intubated or not, will just, it makes it easier if they have a secured airway that you can be a little bit more liberal with your pain control, especially your opioids, without having to worry that they're going to stop breathing and end up hypoxic or hypercapnic. Mm. What about ketamine? I mean, we use, we're starting to use ketamine quite a bit in analgesic doses in our trauma patients and just in general in emergency medicine, it seems to be a commonly, more commonly used drug now. I'm interested to hear your thoughts on its use in, in, in burns. Ketamine is probably my favorite drug to be very frank for burn care. And since we've started using more of it, since I came back and joined the team here, I think it's been an extremely helpful addition to our burn pain protocols or management plans. I certainly am not opposed to it being used early, including the emergency department. I think the way that it's used more often, you can speak to this a little bit better in the emergency setting, is probably as a low dose infusion, which I think is, is very helpful from a pain control perspective. But in addition to that, if you're going to be taking down these patients, whatever primary dressing they came in with, you're going to be assessing the burns, wiping them down, putting the dressings on. I think that bolus dosing or giving a little 
pop-ups during that can be extremely helpful. It is great as a, an analgesic and in particular for procedural sort of interventions such as dressings because it is a little bit dissociative as we know. And so I do think that can be quite a helpful adjunct. Nice. I love that. We've kind of touched on the idea of, of burn dressings and, and managing this. It, I mean, I understand this goes a little bit outside of the realm of the resuscitation component of these patients, but what's your recommendation to us, stand at the bedside, high T, BSA, really sick patient, but we need to also address the wounds themselves? Like just broad strokes, how would you, how would you address these? Yeah, I'm a, a big fan of keeping things extremely simple. I think you've really got two options. If it's going to be a relatively short time to transfer them, don't waste time putting dressings on. Literally cover them with clean, dry blankets. You know, clean, dry sterile towels is great if you've got that option. But even clean, dry blankets is better as a temporary dressing to get them to their site, like their ultimate destination, in this case, the burn center. The rationale is that I don't want someone who is not super comfortable with burns that may not have a lot of supplies on hands to spend hours doing a big TBSA dressing when they could just be coming to Halifax yeah, or wherever their center is. If it's going to be for some reason, if they're going to be delays, then ideally you would be putting on something that is moist and going to avoid desiccating the wounds excessively but not something that's going to cause a lot of evaporation and heat loss. So the usual kind of approach we would have here is just gel on it, dry gauze, and then something to hold all in place because it's very simple and it's relatively easy to get significant quantities of those dressings without having to, to kind of futz around too much and search all over the hospital for it. Right. Yeah, that's great advice. Great advice. Look, Jack, we've come to the end of the podcast. I'm conscious of your time, but I am interested just as one sort of final question. If, if the listeners could take away one thing from this talk that have, would have the greatest impact on their burn resuscitations, if there, were, if there is one thing, what would that be? Keep it simple. Don't get overwhelmed by the burns. And the two big points, and I'm going to cheat and say two, keep them warm because it is so common that burn patients become hypothermic in the pre-hospital emergency department setting. And we know that that has really profound negative outcomes associated with it. And then remember that resuscitation does not have to be complicated with math equations like we talked about earlier. Start at some sort of set rate, 500, whatever you want for your adults, but then just titrate it based on the adequacy of your resuscitation. That I think is the key to avoiding under-resuscitation or over-resuscitation and all the consequences that come from either of those. Amazing. Well, look, you know, I think that by the end of this podcast, the listeners will be well aware that you're an expert in this area and they've gathered and acquired a great deal of knowledge from this. But what they won't realize is the amount of dedication that you put into this topic and into, into caring for these people. I work in the same center that you do, so I, I know the amount of dedication that you put in here, the hours that you put in, the times that you're there caring for these patients when you're not actually working, like you are the burn person where we work. And so not only are our patients lucky to have you, but we're lucky to have you. And you know you should be very proud of, of what you do. And, and thank you for being here, but also just thank you very much for, for everything that you do do. Thank you. That's very kind. I've, Burns is something I became very passionate about in my probably second or third year of residency unexpectedly. And it's something that most folks don't get particularly excited about, but 
those of us locally and nationally, really internationally, who who care about burns, it is a strange passion, but something that we all feel very strongly about. So it's work that I enjoy and feel very lucky to get to do. Yeah, we're lucky to have you. Okay, Jack, thank you so much. Thanks for being on the podcast and take care of yourself. My pleasure. Thanks, James.